Hey, dear listener, before we get into this episode, I want to invite you to a very exciting training I have coming up. If you are a therapist in need of CEUs and seeking to level up your trauma processing game, my friend and co-conspirator, Dr. Kay Hickson, and I are teaching the very first iteration of our class, Mentalization-Based Narrative Exposure Therapy for Complex Interpersonal Trauma. It's a four-day training coming up on April 8th, 9th, 18th, and 19th of 2024. This is a thorough training where you will be provided with a comprehensive framework for processing your client's complex interpersonal trauma through narrative, and you will leave being able to apply these techniques to your cases right away. It's also going to be really fun. Dr. Hickson and I are a good time, even or especially when we're talking about trauma. I would love to see some of you there. You can find the registration information at thekilnschool.com under the Continuing Education tab. And now please enjoy this episode. It's important to consider how you're replicating culture when you're engaging in this project of clinical supervision. And what kind of culture do you want to replicate? When you hear the phrase clinical supervision, what do you think of? For me, the first thing that comes to mind is stacks of paperwork or whatever the electronic version of that is. I think of the years-long slog of racking up hours while I march towards that finish line of professional legitimacy, licensure. It's not a very alive-sounding phrase, is it, clinical supervision? It sounds, well, clinical. And then supervision, not really most people's idea of what sounds like a great time. It conjures up these visions of surveillance, of being put under a microscope, or from the supervisor's side of being the teacher with the whistle on the playground who has to watch all the kids at recess and make sure nobody cracks their head open falling off the monkey bars. But if we put down that lens, if we extricate ourselves from the trap of looking at clinical supervision through the lens of bureaucratic hoop jumping and box checking, if we divest from the pressure to center risk management as the driving force of our clinical and supervisory relationships, you know, if we can tolerate our anxiety about someone falling off the monkey bars here and there, if we can do that, we can see something more profound in the space that's left, which is that in this dance of apprentice and mentor, we are building professional lineages that will shape the culture of our profession, potentially long after we are no longer around. So what kind of culture do we want to shape? I'm Reva Stout, and you're listening to A Therapist Can't Say That, the show where we talk about the things it feels like a therapist can't say. Today, I'm speaking again with my dear friend, colleague, and mentor, Dr. Kay Hickson, about clinical supervision. Dr. Hickson has made clinical supervision and training supervisors a cornerstone of their practice, and the conversation you're going to hear us having today is born out of a shared vision for what clinical supervision has the potential to be. You'll hear us talking about leaning into the intimacy of the supervisory relationship, about why risk tolerance and not risk aversion is an essential quality in a good supervisor, and what distinguishes excellence from expertise, and why we should be striving for the former, not the latter. Most of all, if you are a clinical supervisor or are hoping to become one in the future, my conversation with Dr. Hickson will inspire you to take ownership of the power and influence of your role and to approach the part you play or will play in shaping the future of our professional culture with intention, humility, and reverence. I'm excited to hear what you think. I'm back with Dr. Kay Hickson. Thank you for being here again. Um, I'm glad to be here again. It's so nice. It's been nice to listen to all the episodes and all the amazing folks you've had on and the diverse perspectives. So it's it's totally an honor. Um, let's dive into talking about clinical supervision. So my impression uh, from how people talk about and uh, address the idea of the process of clinical supervision is that people tend to think of it as... Um, not that important or they'll give lip service to it being important, but it's not um, 
something that we tend to like focus on very heavily or engage in um, a lot of thought about. So I'm curious about just your impressions of that and um, the difference maybe between what the common perspectives that you encounter about clinical supervision versus how you see it, how you feel about it. Great question. Um, I have a lot to say about this. So I do think that it is too much of an afterthought in our field or too much of maybe like a hidden aspect of our field because it is another one of the things that happens behind closed doors. Right. Right. <laughs> like our whole field. Right. <laughs> so so one of the things I think about is how master's level clinicians are never told like what good supervision is or what it can be because master's level clinicians are mostly not trained in clinical supervision themselves. So I feel like there's this mystery around like, what is a good clinical supervisor? How do I find a good clinical supervisor? Um, can I get out of a clinical supervision relationship that I don't like? Or, you know, and there's a lot of like, I think tension in it too, because of the gatekeeper role of it. Meaning, you know, you are the last sort of major hurdle before someone gets their independently practicing license. Right. So I think it's quite important um, of, a, of a time in our career. And I, I think sometimes it's very frustrating to do 2,400 hours like we have to do in Oregon, right? Like you're like on number 1897 and you're like, shit, <laughs> I have to keep going and I have to pay for this and I have to keep doing it. And you know, there's obviously no doubt about it that there is a benefit to just having that apprenticeship vibe in this work because we learn so little about the work in school and a lot of it is on the job. And so there's so many course corrections that early career clinicians have to take and learn about. And the clinical supervision relationship is just vital for that, you know? Right. So I believe it's like a really huge pillar of your lineage, you know, totally in the field, you know, so that's just some couple couple thoughts. To contrast how um, little emphasis there is on that relationship with how important it is, like in terms of if we were completely redesigning the career trajectory of therapists, right? Or if like society crumbled and we were trying to like maintain this role, you know, when there weren't institutions and, you know, universities and whatever, I, this would be the one thing, right, that you couldn't actually ever get rid of is some kind of apprentice um, style relationship. Um, and so, uh, it, you know, in retrospect, you know, several years into my career here, it does really seem strange to me um, how, how little emphasis um, the importance of that is given. Um, I'm interested in what you said too about like that master's level can, clinicians don't receive training in clinical supervision. So we don't know, we kind of don't know what it's supposed to be like. And it makes me think of like how, um, you know, when you have somebody who really knows very little about therapy, like a client, right, who like, they don't know anything about therapy. They've never been to therapy. Maybe they're like the first person in their family to ever go to therapy. It wasn't something that they're familiar with. How difficult it is often for those people to know how to use therapy and how they need coaching and how to like effectively utilize that relationship and the process and and aren't necessarily going to know if they're getting bad therapy, right? You know, so like that, that there's a reflection in that in like we don't actually know or we're not taught at that early stage of our careers, like what how you do clinical supervision and therefore we don't really have a means of assessing um, its quality when we're receiving it. Right. And there's all this scrambling to find a clinical supervisor, right? Like out of school. And there's all of this. Um, there's such important work when you're the clinical supervisor. Like you're often like helping people repair prior awful relationships with people in positions of power whether those be the professors or internship supervisors or like you're in this position of helping people renegotiate their own perspective on the field as well, because they're not always taught a lot of what it's really like out here, right? Because graduate school is very disconnected from the field in a lot of ways so you're in such an important role. You're helping people deprogram from like 
if you want to call it like colonial white supremacist kind of ways of teaching in this field. And you're helping people get back to what is actually some of their own intuition that they had before it was taught out of them. So there's so much to say about the importance of your role as a clinical supervisor. And hopefully you have more than one clinical supervisor. Like I'm a fan of having sharing my supervisees with other practitioners because I think multiple perspectives is super valuable. Um, But I do think people don't know what to expect as from their clinical supervisors and they don't know how to challenge them either because of the power dynamic and because of the gatekeeper function. I mean, some people probably should ask for more in clinical supervision. Some people should probably um, think about whether their clinical supervisor is actually good shit for them, you know? And like, because it's such an important relationship, we don't want to call it in. Like, we don't want to call it in. Like, no way. That's why I became a clinical supervisor and why I do the 30-hour training in Oregon is because I felt that my supervisors were calling it in sometimes. Do you know? Yes. And I just wanted to at least try to do a little bit better. I'm curious about like what you said about like uh, with supervisees helping them unlearn um, or repair dynamics from previous relationships from people in power. Because I was just thinking about how, um, you know, you graduate out of your program, whatever, and usually pretty quickly thereafter, you're, you know, the next stage is this clinical supervision relationship. So you're coming out of that um, sort of freshly bruised, you know, and and um, impacted by whatever was happening in your grad program. So I'm wondering if you could say maybe just a little more specifically about some of the things that you see crop up um, frequently in terms of what needs to be repaired about th- those kinds of relationships um, in supervisees often. Yeah, I'll take the unlearning and the repairing. Um, They're both kind of semi-related, but can be separate. So, you know, grad school can be very like mm, black or white or like binary because it's this simplistic kind of time in a counselor or social worker or psychologist development. And so oftentimes things like ethical issues or procedures, practices, the way we do the work, what's important about the work. You know, people come out of school sometimes with professors who've had really strong ideas about certain things that don't actually match the reality of the work in the field. So things that you've talked a lot about on this podcast, whether it be things like self-disclosure, things like working in small communities where you might have a lot of overlap, um, going back into private practice straight out of school, which is an option for us in Oregon as counselors and marriage and family therapists, they often come out of school with very strong ideas about what's good and what's bad, what's right and what's wrong. And that's often like very binary. And there's a lot of complexifying (laughs) their thinking, right? Um, About a lot of those, those things that they've gotten a really particular stance on. And so there's also so much unlearning around, you know, how pathologizing was their program um, versus, you know, really focused on the real struggles of clients in the world, you know, living in this world in this time, right? As if people are just learning a sort of CBT framework, or they're just learning how to diagnose, but they're not learning how to do really good relational therapy. There's just so much teaching involved too, in addition to unlearning or relearning. There's so much people don't learn in school. Um, and then speaking to the repairing, it's just, there is such a tenderness about being in grad school. I'm sure you remember this where it's so tender. Like you, you're worried about grades. You're worried about how you're perceived by your cohort or by your professors. You're feeling self-conscious because most of us are there with trauma backgrounds and lived experience of mental health issues. And we're trying to hide, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and we're well, like, and then the, the content yeah. is so activating. Like, I think, you know, whatever wounds everybody is bringing in that brought them into this work and then you're in grad school, you know, it's 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 a high stakes setting anyway. And then how activating so much of the content is around mental health stuff 
like it brings up your stuff and you're also supposed to simultaneously be proving um, this high level of competence and, you know, unshakable, whatever you're like demonstrating some kind of unshakable um, sense of professionalism or whatever it is. Yeah. Totally. And I mean, I've seen that the repair that's often needed is, you know, sometimes people are incredibly shut down in the classroom or they're incredibly silenced. Um, Maybe they have a perspective that's a little different or um, maybe they're passionate about something that their professors think is bullshit or whatever. Um, And, you know, disagreeing is fine, but sometimes people are so silenced, I think, in grad school. and then I think the other side of that coin can be that sometimes students aren't willing to sit with discomfort either that is very necessary. So I feel like I'm always going to be holding that complexity that, you know, the educational setting is challenging on both sides sometimes um, because students can be incredibly tough Um and they are paying probably eighty to one hundred twenty thousand dollars for this education. So what are we providing them with? And they can be, you know, pissy about that, and they can be demanding. And there's probably some really good reasons for that. But then again, they also are in this power dynamic where they can be incredibly silenced, incredibly shut down, you know, incredibly harmed. You know, we know that people with marginalized identity in graduate school, they have a lot to say about how messed up it is. Um, not all of them and not every program, but um, it, there's still such an old school quality to some of our training, mm-hmm. you know, that, that is, that is, is just not matching the complexity of the world we're in. And then you have these students with fresh faces who are actually living in the world, coming to school with these professors who've maybe been there for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. And they're not updated their schemas. There's just so much complexity in this way that we learn this field. There's just, it's like all the things you brought up on the previous episodes. There's so much, there's so much to it. And there's this dynamic in grad school. And then there's this dynamic in your early career, right? And then there's this dynamic post, post licensure. Mm -hmm. And so hypothetically, what I'm saying is in that, awesome, hopefully, clinical supervision relationship or relationships, you get to really grapple with what you want to keep from your training right? and what you want to leave behind and what else you want to learn and how else you want to grow. And hopefully, in a really good clinical supervision relationship, you're also doing some good person of the therapist work that you couldn't do in grad school because maybe it wasn't safe or maybe they didn't do a lot of it in grad school. So you're really able to, you know, your clinical supervisor isn't your counselor, but they're able to use their counseling skills to help you become a better clinician. Just as somebody who trains supervisors um, and supervises supervisors and has that that kind of like meta view onto all of this stuff, um, I'm curious about what you see some of the like problematic or like harmful norms that maybe aren't being questioned or uh, talked about as much that are being maybe reproduced through whether it's through grad school and then also through the supervision relationship. Yeah. I mean, this is just so basic, but one of the first ones I try to combat in the clinical supervision training is the fact that just because you're a good counselor doesn't mean you're going to be a good clinical supervisor. There's a lot of mythologies, I think, inside this whole field, but there's definitely a ton in clinical supervision if you dig for them or maybe not even if you just brush the surface. It's a specific skill set. Like it's a different thing. You're going to use all those awesome counselor skills, all those like micro skills that you use when you're a counselor as a supervisor, but you're actually systematically applying knowledge that will help your clinical supervisee perform their job better. Mm-hmm. You know, that's like, it's different than just being a good counselor. It's, you have to be a good teacher. You have to know how to help people learn. You have to know how to help them accept feedback. You have to just apply the knowledge of counseling in a 
bit more removed way that actually makes you sharper as a clinician, in my opinion, because being a supervisor really sharpens your sense of like, well, what do I think about this? Or what would I do about this? Or what do I believe um, is an ethical approach to this dilemma? Um, And so I think... um, clinical supervision, like so many people aren't actually trained that are out there working in agencies doing it. Mm -hmm. Or so many people don't have to be trained if they're not working at this licensure level. And so lots of people feel like they're not getting good clinical supervision out there in the world. And they also feel like what they're getting is administrative supervision, Mm -hmm. right? Which is so different. And so administrative supervision is about efficiency, productivity, right? The rules of the organization, Clinical supervision is about two things. It's about improving and ensuring client welfare and contributing to the professional and personal development of your supervisee. Mm -hmm. So so it's different than clinical work and um, your clinical work definitely helps you do do the job of a clinical supervisor. Your experience is invaluable. Absolutely. Just chewing on it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'm just Mm -hmm. thinking about two... you know, some of the skills in clinical supervision, and I haven't done it yet. So I haven't, you know, ventured into this realm. So it's to some degree for me speculative still. But there's a degree of getting in there more. And I believe in like doing that as a therapist, like I I really believe in getting in there. But I think a lot of clinicians, that's not they're a little less confrontational. They're a little more hands-off in certain, you know, in certain regards. And I would imagine, right, that in a supervision relationship, the stakes are not just like as nebulous, perhaps, as with the client, you know, if I confront them about this or not. It's not somebody else's, a third party's welfare usually isn't hinging on whether I do that or not. Um, so there being a, a, a different layer of stakes, Um that requires a different level of um, involvement. Attunement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Attunement, I would say. And I think think getting in there as a supervisor is incredibly important. And I think that means like getting in there in all kinds of ways, right? Like I use the counselor role when it's useful, the teacher role when it's useful, and the peer like consultant role when it's useful because I don't always need to be teaching something, you know? I don't always need to be the dominant expert. My supervisees know a lot about a lot of things. And so it's like also about being able to know when to use those tools differently based on what's coming up. And you do have to get in there. Like this is, inc- I think supervision is actually incredibly intimate, to be honest. Totally, yeah. Like, and and I don't think that people think of it that way. They think of it as this dry checkbox <laughs> thing you were talking about at the beginning. And I think it's like this incredibly intimate relationship where you show all this vulnerability about how you think about the work, how you intervene in the work, how you feel about the world, you know, how you feel about yourself. And all of those things come up in the clinical supervision hour or hour and a half. And it can be incredibly rich and layered. And I think that it's incredibly energizing for me. If you're not energized doing supervision, you should not be doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that um, point about the intimacy, I think, is very, very well taken. You know, I think even in the context of thinking about like my uh, my clients who are therapists, right, which is such a whole can of worms that I want to do an episode on really badly um, at some point here. But uh, but like when we talk about their work, right, because the work comes in, um, you know, to the like to the session sometimes, right? It feels so much more tender almost than when people are talking about like their family or their kids. Like, you know, some of the most you think like, oh, those are the most intimate realms of your life or whatever is your personal stuff. But in this, like, I don't think that's the case. Like there's something that is so, um, there's so much vulnerability in getting into a therapist's head around their work. And when I've brought into my own, you know, as a client with my own therapist, when I've brought up stuff w- around my own clients, that's the stuff that I often feel most guarded around and stressed out about and bringing into therapy. Um, and so I think that's a really important point that when um, 
when we're if I think if you're doing good clinical supervision, it is intimate. And perhaps that sense of like, oh, it's checking boxes and it's managing risk and it's filling out your forms every six months is perhaps like a a way of diverting the focus away from how uncomfortable that level of intimacy is. I like that, Reva. And I think that's pretty accurate, even if people don't know that's what they're doing. Right. And I think that um, it's just such a loss if we're not utilizing this moment in our career to get really real about things because it's it's the time where it's going to be the realist. But it is there's something about being witnessed as the clinician bringing something to supervision. There's something about that witnessing right. that is really vulnerable. And I wish it was more normalized as not that vulnerable, but you know, that's what I try to do as a clinical supervisor and a trainer out here is normalize um, that in a way because I think it makes us all better, right? Because that's what we're trying to do, Riva. Like as clinical supervisors, we're trying to make this feel better. Right. Yeah. Like if if we're not doing that, what else? There's are we no doing? point, right? right? Yeah. There's no point, right? <laughs> yeah. It's like, and yeah, that might be like a subjective sense of better based on like my sense of what's better, but. I think that it's a hidden feature of how excellence develops in our field. Mm -hmm. it, like it's it's so subtle of a relationship sometimes, and it's so important actually. And I think that um, again, if you're not excited about supervision, you shouldn't be doing it. This is like the you know, as a relational cultural theory person, I think about relational zest a lot. You know, and like when you're feeling that. And like, I want to feel that with my supervisees. And if I'm feeling shut down or they're feeling shut down or we're not um, connecting or there seems to be some kind of stagnant energy, then we have to figure out what that is because we're losing the potency of this particular relationship that can be so valuable. Mm -hmm. So I guess I'm incredibly passionate about it, actually, mm -hmm. as we're talking, of course, not surprising, but. I feel like it is very intimate. And if you're not showing up that way as a supervisor, right? if you're not willing to bring your own shit into the room or your own mistakes, right? Or your own vulnerabilities, your supervisee certainly isn't going to. Right. Yeah. Say more about like what you think supervisors can do and should be doing to facilitate, you know, the intimacy and the, the, aliveness, you know, of that relationship? I mean, I think it can start from like a place of understanding both of our identities and like who we are and what our worldviews are and what our values are and what we think about being clinicians in this time. It can just start with like, who are we together in this space? And I think it has a lot to do with forming an actually authentic, vulnerable relationship because, you know, people always talk about risk management, right? And the reality is your best defense against risk management as a clinical supervisor is to build an authentic, transparent relationship where people know that they can come to you and you are not going to come down on them with humiliating feedback or with your own clinical anxiety, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. period. That if a, a, cl a clinician, a supervisee is coming to you with a mistake that they've made or a scary case where there could be some sort of high risk situation involved that you're not going to project your own like, oh, my God, it's my license, like that energy onto them. Right. That's like the worst kind of energy to actually give to a supervisee. And if you don't have risk tolerance, this isn't the gig for you because you do have to tolerate that risk and you do have to, in a sense, trust these clinicians I think it's really valuable to see their work, to see tapes once in a while, even postgraduate. Um, I try to do that when I can. It feels burdensome to some of them, but I think we should be showing more of our own tapes Absolutely. and our own work. And I think that um, we should be revealing our own vulnerabilities and mistakes, like just naturally as a course of connection and as, as in the course of the relationship. Um, you know, I have had to share some you know, sometimes you have to share some really personal things about yourself because you're coming off as bananas right now. You know, that's like what's happening for me going through a particular period of my life right. where I'm like, wow, I'm kind of extra right now. <laughs> um, 
and telling your supervisees like, hey, yeah, if I'm a little too much for you right now, you can let me know, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. and just being open to feedback, too, I think is really important. Mm -hmm. Um, Being willing to make mistakes as a supervisor and being willing to own up to those. Um, There's so much humility, I would say, (laughs) that you have to have, actually, because your supervisors are going to be asking you questions that you may have some experience with, but you don't know everything even as the clinical supervisor. Right. Right. right, Absolutely. So like, so like you have to be humble in the way that you formulate that relationship and how vulnerable you are and how, how much trust you allow to build just makes for such a valuable container for improving people's clinical work that I just think Again, it it can't be a checkbox. It just can't. And it occurs to me, to me, the things that you're identifying as being so key to facilitating, you know, a a generative, intimate supervision relationship are also the things that I think people tend to struggle a great deal with as clinicians, right? So risk tolerance being one, you know, I think that there's a huge, huge problem with, with, um, you know, anxiety about risk, low tolerance for anxiety about risk. Um, in this field. Um, and so if you're not actively working on that, I'm not one to say like you resolve it and then you get to be a clinical supervisor. That's not how life is. But to no. to be actively working on your anxiety tolerance around risk, um, that if you're not doing that, you're going to bring that into um, the supervision relationship in a way that could reproduce. You know, we send that down the line. We send that risk aversion down the line in a way that can be, you know, potentially harmful. Um, Things like being able to admit our mistakes or, you know, errors in judgment or things that we struggle with as clinicians, you know, um, I think that's challenging for people to do in a professional setting um, in general, whether they're supervising people or not to say like, I struggle with XYZ as a therapist because we're always trying to prove that we're good enough and competent and not impaired and professional and whatever, you know, and how do we, I think the responsibility, you know, I have so much compassion for that because it's things that we all have to reckon with in this field. And then when you're taking on a role of supervision that there's a a real increased responsibility to be like working on that so as not to pass that on uninterrupted and uninterrogated so good to work on anything that's gonna interfere with that lineage of what's happening because your supervisee is going to become a supervisor at some point right right and then there you know it's the line continues right and it doesn't mean i'm all that important in the grand scheme of things but there is there are like these important crucial moments in the clinical supervision relationship and Um, I definitely see so much development in the two to four years that I have people. It's just mind blowing to me and it makes me more supportive of this apprenticeship model. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I can see so much development from those first several months to the last several months. And it's wonderful to see. I was just sitting with a group of supervisees this morning and they're all going to finish in about six to eight months. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I saw so much growth in them just sitting and listening to them today talk about their work and their cases. Um, I mean, that is just, that's so rewarding, you know? Um, And I got to say that it's also hard to be a supervisor in this time that we're in right now. So that has also been a thing I've been thinking about a lot lately is, is how does the time we're in meaning um, late stage capitalism, pandemic, climate collapse, all the things, you know, right? Um, The severe like culture war we're in, all of those things, um, telehealth, whatever, like all of those things have made supervision quite a bit challenging in the last couple of years. And I would say that my supervisees have kept me on my toes, you know, for sure, with the challenges that they're having to face due to increased demand for mental health care, right? Um, increased um, risks of, you know, suicidality and self-harm and all of those things. So, um, so yeah, I would say like supervision has, has been um, really active for me in the last couple of years, you know, and I think I've worked on a lot more person of the therapist issues with people and a lot more early career disappointment, um, with people in the last couple of years. 
Um, I'm really, I'm, I want, I would love for you to say more about that. But before I, I also want to highlight, like, just, you know, like what you said about like, are you all that important in the grand scheme of things? I, maybe not one individual, but I think ultimately like anybody who's taking on a significant like supervisory or teaching role in this field, like collectively we are making a contribution to creating the culture of the next generation of therapists. And so that to me is like, I think the importance of that is important not to downplay, you know, because that's, um, you know, and, and just to tie it in, in this time of like massive, you know, upheaval that I assume is going to continue, um, creating culture and, and what we do to, you know, influence the culture of this field moving forward. To me, that that's like, there, there is like a make or break quality to that. And, you know, Yes, we have limited impact as individuals, but but I think it is very important. Yeah, I mean, I think you're just calling me in there to recognize my own power, which is something I always need to be called into more because dot, 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 another podcast episode. But <laughs> um, but I appreciate you. And I do think it relates to we do end up contributing to the schema inside clinicians' minds that help them solve future problems. Right, right, right. right. So we absolutely are that, and we actually are kind of on their shoulder sometimes or absolutely. part of the committee that's on the clinician's shoulder helping them figure out how to do X, Y, or Z next move. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a tension um, there, and I think I think I am intentionally doing clinical supervision to change the culture of this field in my own tiny little corner of it. And I think that is probably one of the reasons why I got into it um, as well. Mm -hmm. What is it in your, when you're working with that motivation, what is the culture that you're hoping to create? Like what are the changes that through your supervision practice you're hoping to um, enact in this field? I mean, I'm a real big fan of, of letting go of this om omnipotence that we carry as a field or as individuals in the field, this, this idea that we know everything or we can know everything. So I think I directly try to challenge uh, the expertise, um, false professionalism, like the even foundational scientific research underneath this field is very weak um, in a lot of ways. So I think humility is incredibly important in the culture to change that. Um, and it relates to a lot of the things you talked about in your episode with Oprah um, in terms of how we treat each other in this field professionally and how we engage peer accountability, um, lifelong learning, needing to be part of it, doing our own personal work, needing to be part of it, um, and just challenging the culture of rigidity too. Um, and understanding that there's so much nuance in this work, there's so much nuance in how we apply these knowledges and how we accomplish this project of helping clients. Mm -hmm. And we act as if it's one thing and it's like about a billion things. And I mean, I, I want to challenge the sort of roots of like white patriarchal kind of the foundations of the field, you know, and like so many more people have come along behind me and, you know, critiqued, you know, these healing methodologies that we act like we've invented. Um, you know, that have been around forever, you know, and, and we are just formally engaging in this work. So, gosh, there's so much culture shift that I want, you know, and I think a lot of people are trying to bring, you know, um, more complexity to this field right now and to critique the field, right? And to critique the roots of it and to critique uh, all the systemic forces that are impacting our work right now, right? I've gotten pretty protective of my supervisees actually over the course of the pandemic. And I think I'm thinking a lot about what we're bringing them into. Yeah. What, what kind of field are we bringing them into? 
what kind of culture are we bringing them into? It's kind of wild to me that this is where the world is at in 2022. And I, I said this on my other episode too. It's just, we're in the middle, right? As clinicians, we have our own person of the therapist issues that brought us into this work, right? Our own trauma, our own whatever. And then we have these systemic forces that are telling us um, we have to do more. We have to be more. We have to get certain certifications or we're not valid. We have to do X, Y, or Z, or we're not good enough. And that feeds into and pulls on all of our person of the therapist stuff. And I just think the interface of like who we are as clinicians and how the system's setting us up right now is such an interesting intersection. And I'm feeling like very interested in how we challenge some of those narratives about what this work is, what we should be doing and, and how much we should be helping. And I just feel really clear that we need to be more protective of ourselves in, in this work. And I'm trying to help my supervisees be a little more protective of themselves in this work. Yeah, I I like that. I I'm glad you gave voice to that. I was thinking, you know, and just for the listeners, I just was recently in um, Dr. Hickson's 30 hour supervision training, um, and we were talking about some of those ideas around impairment, right? And that idea of like not practicing while impaired, and how does that, you know, one of the things I brought up being how to how does that actually bump up against what we're experiencing, um, both collectively as human beings, but also as a profession, um, that there's a level to which um, I think perhaps typically, you know, over the past however many decades of the field, there's a level of performance in terms of just one's capacity to be, you know, show up with this perfect consistency and this like this level of personal, you know, wellness that I think is actually not um achievable and is increasingly not achievable and how does that bump up against you know those systemic expectations those traditional expectations of what what we're supposed to be like as people and as therapists right i don't and there's no answer there's just not an answer to that um but there's something about accepting our fallibility and humanness that i think is going to become increasingly essential if if we're going to maintain this profession and not just have it be a constant turnover, new clinicians burning out, new clinicians burning out. Right. Or we're going to dumb it down so much that um, it's just like a workbook or right. some worksheets right, or right, something. Right. And like that, that humanness is actually what makes us good at this job. Mm -hmm. Like the, the, the full humanity of the scope of how we live our lives, how we struggle, how we suffer, how we have joy, how we, how we recover how we recover from grief, how we deal with all of this is the thing that makes us good at any of it. And so if we try to paper that over um, with this idea that you can become a certified clinician in X and then help everyone effectively from that framework, you know, we are fooling ourselves. And I think I'm seeing early career clinicians struggle immensely with what you mentioned right now. And just they don't they haven't had a choice but to come out of school and be entirely wrecked by everything that's happened in the last six years, you know, um, I mean, in our whole lifetime. But, but like with increasing intensity. Like, yeah. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. frequency. Yeah. With increasing yeah. intensity, frequency, layers, yeah. ongoing onslaught. And I think. Um, it's going to make the work of clinical supervision more important going forward and more important to do with lots of intention and with lots of passion. Um, you know, I feel very um, like I get frustrated when I see shitty attitudes about students or early career clinicians because we were once there, too. Like what makes anyone feel so secure in how they're doing this work? that we can like talk shit on someone who's still learning. Like it, it, that's a pet peeve of mine as like a counselor, educator, trainer person is mm. to have respect for these relationships. I mean, these people are coming to us and 
Luckily, sometimes they do choose us, although many people working in certain systems don't get to choose their clinical supervisor, which is a whole nother challenge. But like, I feel like a reverence for this job, like complete uh, an utter reverence. And um, again, fiercely feeling fiercely protective of my early career clinicians that I work with because I think they're coming out of school and entering this field in such a brutal time. Right. If you look at the research, right, saying that experience does not translate, you know, past uh, the first few years, exp additional experience does not translate to better clinical outcomes, right? Um, which I have said before, and I'll say now that I hate that. I hate that that's true. You know, I want to, what I would like to believe is that just naturally by um, gaining more experience in this field, I become a better and better clinician. Um, the research says that we don't, you know, not that we can't become better clinicians by utilizing our experience, but that you have to be actively utilizing your experience, reflecting on it and turning it into learning to improve. We don't necessarily have the, the right, you know, to sit in judgment of somebody who's only been in the field a couple of years based on our supposed efficacy, you know, and I think that's something to, you know, as people gain experience and traction in the field to remember that, like, that's not, um, you know, we're not necessarily so much better just by virtue of having hung around here for a couple of decades, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true, especially if we've been hanging around and not doing that form of deliberate practice that you speak of where you are systematically examining, okay, how did that go? How does this feel? You know, I'm always doing that with supervision practice too because I'm like, you know, how was that session? How did I feel about it? How did I feel about that intervention of challenging that supervisee? You know, um, it's just so important. And I, I understand people's frustration trying to hire people out of graduate school and feeling like, what? They don't know how to do a treatment plan? And it's like, well, I mean, but but the, they're not taught that. Yeah, somebody should have taught and them how to do a fucking like, treatment plan. I just like, that's the, yeah, that's the kind of thing where I'm like, how do you spend that much money and time on your education on something that some people see as important, um, you know, and certainly you'll be required to do in many roles. Right. And you just don't. Right. Just right. like figure that out later. Right. Because in my grad school experience, we certainly weren't spending the majority of our time honing our clinical practice. So if we weren't learning the hoops and we weren't honing our clinical practice. Right. Eh, right. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's a both and it can be very frustrating uh, teaching early career clinicians everything that they didn't learn. It, it, like, that's just real. It's, it's not personal. It's just frustrating and it's systemic for the most part. And I think, you know, we owe the folks that are coming behind us, again, the humility of knowing that we were there once too. The only difference between me and a clinical supervisee is time. Like, the time I entered the field versus the time they're entering the field. Like legitimately, that's it. And so, yes, you have a lot of wisdom to impart. You should, you know, use that power effectively to share that wisdom and to, um, you know, shift culture and grow clinical skills and help those clients of those supervisees um, for sure. And, you know, it's... Uh, it's, a, it's complicated, I would say, all of it. Everything we're talking about has layers of complicated nuance. But I think this job does deserve that respect that I feel like I try to give it. And, you know, I think it goes into some, some great conversations we had in the last clinical supervision co cohort about, like, needing to be a little more hum humble with our peer accountability and giving each other feedback and being able to communicate with each other about, you know, what we're hearing because clinical supervisors are probably the least held accountable in our field. Like clinical supervisors are scared of the liability of supervising and they are worried about the risk and they are the least likely to be held accountable. Right. Yeah. So I feel like that's an incredibly important ethical imperative to hold yourself to a standard um, because in your position of power, um, it's going to be hard for people to complain about you. You're the boss, you're the gatekeeper. They have to see you in their community in the next training. Um, I, I think we should hold ourselves to a higher standard in terms of trying to be really good clinical supervisors so we don't have to rely on fear 
to be the thing that doesn't get us in trouble. But I think that that's some of the culture stuff too, is, is being able to have a clinical supervisee who heard something difficult about how their client was treated in couple therapy, right? And then being able to encourage that supervisee to reach out to that couples therapist, right? Or, or the couples therapist supervisor to inquire as to what they heard or what they experienced and, and, and stop saying everyone's unethical or you're going to lose your license, right? Like that's my pet peeve. It's like, look at the board sanctions. People are not losing their license for a lot of things. And so we can't use that, that form of coercion like our carceral thinking to accomplish this task of building better clinicians and improving client welfare, you know, that's not going to do it. Yeah. So it's, it's like, I think what you're articulating now, like that sense of like, as a supervisor, you're not just, you know, helping to teach and develop these emerging clinicians in terms of how they engage with clients. You're not, it's not just how to be a therapist with clients. It's how to be a therapist with other Agreed. therapists. And that seems like an important piece that I don't actually think I've ever heard anyone, but that like, I don't think I've ever heard a conversation about that ever until like this exact moment that we're having it, you know, it, it's those, um, intra-community relationships, um, are a really essential piece of the learning that takes place in your early career as well. And how many of us have had shitty experiences of that in our early career? I think that's a huge number of people. Totally. And I think that it's probably a subtle part of clinical supervision, but I think that it's, it's part of it. You know, how do you treat each other in this role? How do you talk about your peers to your supervisee? How do you support your supervisee in seeking consultation from other people and not assuming that you have all the answers as the clinical supervisor? How do you extend this learning relationship? Um, how do you, I mean, this is actually kind of a mentoring relationship. I mean, we haven't used the mentoring word in this conversation yet, but there's a lot of mentoring involved in clinical supervision that is kind of an interesting thing because we pay for our mentoring in this field. Right. right? Yeah. Like, yeah. There's not a good culture of informal professional mentorship in this field because time, energy, money, clients, like it's, right. it's hard to have an informal mentorship relationship in this field. I think it's possible. And I think that as peers, we're often mentoring each other if we're peers to each other. Right. And we're like bringing our dilemmas to each other as peers and grappling with the complexities of this field. Um, but I think that um, it's just, it's important to consider how you're replicating culture when you're engaging in this project of clinical supervision. And what kind of culture do you want to replicate? Right. You know? Right. Do you want to replicate shitty culture that's dominating, that's power over, that's all about expertise, who's better than who, who has a better set of num letters after their name, who's trained in what, who's, who are you starstruck by this week? Um, or do you want to think about the real reality that we're in a community together? We have to figure out how to help people together. We have to help each other get through this career together. We have to support one another. You know, we have to show up for each other. And I think that it's incredibly important to think about that. One of the um, one of the threads that's related to that uh, that I don't want to lose um, is you know what what you said and and you just reiterated that piece about you know undoing this like expertise based model you know that's about you know how many credentials you have and you know. Um, all the things that you people rack up, you know, to sh demonstrate their legitimacy, right? Um, and one of the things you also talked about earlier that, um, you know, you didn't use this language, but some of the sort of mythos around evidence-based practice of like, oh, if I just, you know, have fidelity to this model that's evidence-based, then that that constitutes good therapy. You know, that that whole, the, the sort of shaky foundations of that, that some of this expertise model um, 
sits on top of, right? Um, so there's that that piece. And then there's also the piece that I've heard, you know, you talk about a lot around excellence and and a sense of like rigor and excellence in this work and within this field. And I'm I would love to hear you just speak to how you square those ideas because I think a lot of people think of excellence as being the development of expertise, right? And and doing exactly all of that stuff that I was just talking about, that, that that's what excellence is. And so to you, um, how do we facilitate excellence in our clinical practice and, and in, within supervision too, um, without relying on that framework? Excellent question. Um, I think that it's a matter of using our power more effectively and not just dominating people or telling them what to do, but coming to them with genuine curiosity and eliciting their own knowledge base to help answer some of the questions and to actually create relationships with people. You can be an expert and you can tell people what to do. That doesn't mean you have a relationship with them. Because if you have a relationship, you're gonna be able to be more honest. You're gonna be able to challenge them. You're going to be able to bring that critical perspective, not critical as a negative, but critical as an analytical perspective to a conversation. And you're going to be able to come to someone, you're going to be able to say, I have questions about how that went. I feel curious about why you chose that. Like, that's what brings excellence is like honesty, but not dominating or humiliating people or making them a mini you. Like, I mean... I think sometimes there is that sort of people adopting your approach and your style because they're they're needing that and that's fine. There's a there's a there's an influence that's possible, sure. Yeah. Right. Right. But like excellence to me is about critically coming together and examining things with an attitude of curiosity and just a framework of being willing to not know as well. So excellence actually, I think, originates a little bit from a not knowing stance and being willing to be not knowing a lot and then being able to iterate and learn. And I'm such an iterative learner and thinker that like there's an infinite amount of growth that can happen. And so I think expertise is like people are craving expertise in our field right now. And I think they're relying on credentials and specific training programs to kind of shore up that feeling of expertise because we're not necessarily learning how to have good basic clinical relationships in grad school, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. We're not learning a lot of the foundations of clinical work in terms of relating rapport, being people together in a room. And so I think there's more of that right now. We go through phases of that in our field where such and such is trendy and everyone wants to get trained in it. But the reality is, um, I think we rely on those things more when we don't get the basics of, of how to do relationship building. Um, and so I think expertise is kind of like a false, you know, pedestal in a way. So there's a sense in which for you, like the excellence is located in the, like how well we're able to uh, create a high quality relationship. Totally. Because if you create a high quality relationship, you have a lot of influence right. over challenging things, correcting things, introducing new perspectives, um, complicating the dialogue, complicating the simplicity that, that can be bypassed in this work, right? Like you can bypass a lot of shit in this work, mm -hmm. you know, but there's so much opportunity to hold a lot of complexity. And I just think, um, I don't know, excellence is to me really about yeah, you do have to be able to build a relationship. And I don't think that has to look one way. There's all kinds of ways to have relationships, but you do have to be willing to be honest. And I find that to be harder than I wish it was for clinicians. I mean, I see clinicians be so afraid of giving clients feedback, so afraid of saying, nope, I can't see you. I'm going to have to refer you out. I see them afraid of setting boundaries, mm -hmm. afraid of asking for their cancellation fee, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. like, like it's all normal. But I think the honesty is 
is really related to excellence in my mind. And saying saying what's true, saying right. what's in the room, right? Being curious, like not bypassing hard conversations. Yeah, I think um, I really like that idea of the you know the quality of excellent clinical work being located in the relationship that you're able to create. Um, I certainly think, you know, to me, the most unassailable research says that that's true. Um, and yet we give it short shrift. You know, it's like, oh, the therapeutic relationship, whatever. Well, okay, what is that? You know, what are the building blocks of that? Like what, you know, the, and I think, you know, you've articulated some of them, which is the anxiety tolerance to have difficult conversations and name what's happening, uh, you know, to me, that's a lifelong practice of increasing my capacity sure. for that, um, you know, and, you know, the same being true of that supervisor supervisee relationship, like what, what are the building blocks we're talking about? You know, it's not, um, it's not easy to create good, high quality, resilient, robust, honest relationships. It's not in this culture. Like, we're that's like probably the thing that we're the worst at culturally, you know? Yes. Um, and, and that the conditions of this culture really infiltrate quite a bit, you know, and and that, that we have to be very like we have to guard against some of those things. That's why when you're doing clinical supervision, you can't lead from a risk management framework. You have to lead from a doing good work framework. You know, that's why you can't dominate people into doing what you want them to do because they're behind a closed door that you can't see anyway so good luck dominating them right right <laughs> like you you can't watch them every minute of their clinical work so you have to find other ways to use your power and to influence them um that are not so power over um yeah i mean it's so wild to talk to you about clinical i've never had like an expansive conversation about clinical supervision i've obviously taught the training quite a bit and i try to bring themes into that training that are profession-wide kind of questions and concerns but it's it's just like widening the map for me a little bit just to talk out loud about it so i'm kind of like watching this map in front of me and it's like there's so much on it and there's so much to it. And that just makes me like respect it more, you know, because it is so complicated. You know, one of the more recent, uh, a supervisor can't say that moments was um, pretty recently because I've been talking about this more protective vibe that's come up for me in the last couple of years with supervisees entering the field um, just even recently, just saying to someone like what I referred to earlier, like you, you can say, no, you don't have to see that person. Right. Like literally shocked. Sometimes they're shocked. You know, it's like, uh, why, why, you know? And I think a lot of the therapists, you know, the supervisor can't say that conversations are about the person of the therapist issues yeah. of like helping people understand people understand how their own like signature theme that they're still working with is interfering or helping the clinical work. Mm -hmm. So um, those are more like private conversations, yeah. but just helping people understand how their own signature theme relates back to what's happening. But I think just telling the truth all the time as much as you can about what it's re what's really happening is so important as a supervisor. So I don't know if I have anything spicy for you because again, all of it feels really embedded into like my everyday practice of being just a general truth teller, I would say, you know, but, um, but I think there's a lot of power in speaking truth in the clinical supervision relationship and not performing and not repeating party lines or bullshit you don't actually believe mm -hmm. and, and being really honest about what you believe about the work. Right. Like to me, it just harkens back to that, you know, that idea that I was talking about in one of our first episodes, which was that idea of the good therapist, that if you're not, you know, the good therapist TM, you know, if you're, and that if you can, divest yourself from 
inhabiting that role of like the good supervisor, you can help your supervisee divest from that, you know, image of the good therapist. And that to me seems like some of the most important work that we can do. I agree. Thank you for chatting with me about clinical supervision. I hope it was um, on par with the spiciness of your other episodes. You can find Dr. Hickson at drhickson.com. If you are in Oregon and you're interested in changing the culture of our field for the better by taking on the role of a clinical supervisor, you can go to Dr. Hickson's website to find out more about their 30-hour supervision training, which consistently gets rave reviews. If you are excited about what I'm trying to do here at A Therapist Can't Say That, it would be a great help to me if you would rate, review, and follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts. And I especially appreciate you sharing the show with your therapists and your therapist friends who are aspiring culture shifters and change makers in this field. You can find me, Reva Stout, at intothewoodsportland.com. I always welcome your thoughts, feedback, critiques, complaints, compliments, suggestions, and of course, your a therapist can't say that moments. Feel free to reach out to me via email or sending me a voice note to Riva at IntoTheWoodsPortland.com. Talk to you next time.